Melissa Martini, uh, the Center GA. Um, so I um, want to welcome all of you. Thank you for coming. And um, this is uh, this, this workshop on how do we, I couldn't find a diplomatic way to say it. How do we deal with, how do we work with, how do we support? I changed the title at one point, international students. Yeah, how, how do we help them? They come with certain challenges we know that are different from typical students. Okay. And um, so I immediately thought of the three of you. So um, I think we should just go around the table. We'll go from me around, around Melissa's way um, and to get the speakers and then end up with our guest. And uh, talk to, say you know, your name and who you are and then we can actually come back and, and start talking about what we're going to talk about. I'm Melissa Martini. I'm the GA for the Center for Faculty Development and I'm an English grad student. Hello, I'm Maria Buza, the Director of the Office of International uh, Programs. Adrian Tamira, Coordinator for the ESL Program. Hi, I'm Gita Dasbender. I'm the Coordinator of Second Language Rating in the English Department. And I'm Carol Brett, formerly the Registrar's Office, but now I'm one of uh, Adrian's group teaching ESL. Oh, fabulous. Very good. Um, so, Melissa, how well does this pick up? Pretty well? Okay, just asking. All right. So, um, each of you deals with international students on campus in a different way. This could be like an interview. <laughs> um, so maybe I, I'll ask you each in turn to talk about what you were going to talk about, the issues you were going to address. You have handouts. That's fabulous. Um, I do, as I said, I know a few people who wanted to come so I can um, Melissa can take care of getting stuff to them, and um, and we if you are if we're able to post it on this faculty development website, that would be fabulous too. So, uh, and in fact, I know there are a few people in the English department who would probably love a copy of this. Kelly Shea, Ed Jones, um, Melinda, maybe we have a few people who who work fairly regularly with. Um, international students for different reasons. So anyway, so Maria, why don't you kick us off? Sure. Um, so for anyone that's not familiar with our office, mm -hmm. we support both international students and scholars as well as study abroad students on campus. So our primary function with regards to international students is that we help them obtain the international student visa or you might have some exchange students that are just visiting for the semester mm -hmm. to obtain the appropriate visa and then maintain their visa status while, they, while they're here. Mm -hmm. And then study abroad students, we help them navigate the entire study abroad process. So I was really happy to learn that you're hosting this workshop because of course um, this is a primary function of our office and we find that the more outreach we can do and inform people about the restrictions that international students face, the better. You know, uh, their visa affects every single facet of their life in the United States, including registering for classes, taking on off-campus internships, uh, when they can arrive in the United States, when they have to leave by virtually everything. So I did create this manual for those advisors that do work with students, cool. international students. Um, so again, our office only creates the visa documents for students that are on the F, like Frank, F1 international student visa. So those students are coming to complete an entire degree for ESL, ESL program at Seton Hall. We also create the 
uh, documents required for the J-1 visa, mm -hmm. but not all J-1 categories. There's a lot of different J-1 categories, camp counselor, so on. We deal with the exchange students and scholars. Mm -hmm. Um, but there are many different types of international students at Seton Hall. Mm -hmm. People that are permanent residents, which you know some people might re consider them international, some not. Mm -hmm. um, then uh, maybe children of parents that are here on a worker visa or intercompany transfer or government visa or I mean the list goes on and on. I know Adrian has quite a few au pairs that are here studying. So, um, you know, we can certainly, you know, help those students as much as we can, but we're not the expert in those visa types. So the experts would be whoever created the visa documents for them. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure most of the students that the advisors in arts and sciences deal with would be F1. Mm -hmm. And I took a quick stat, you know, a quick look to see how many we have. So just overall, we do have 363 in international students on the F-1 visa mm -hmm. and that includes different levels of education. Mm -hmm. So as of the spring semester we have 183 students studying at the bachelor's level and 70 of them are in the College of Arts and Sciences. Mm -hmm. So it looks like um, biology, computer science, pre-major with F-1 under arts and sciences. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, undecided seem to be the top Categories. There's also psychology, chemistry, you know, political science, and so on. Mm -hmm. So, um, so this manual goes through some of the most common scenarios that advisors would face when advising international students. So, some of the most basic things about the visa that would affect their education is that they always have to be a full-time student. So at Seton Hall, full-time for undergraduate means 12 credits. So, you know, keep that in mind when advising students. Um, they can be part-time, but for only certain reasons, which I'll go into later. Um, and, I, you know, I would say you don't, nobody has to memorize all these rules, but the one thing is just to refer them to our office so we can chime in. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that goes into um, a very basic problem. Uh, how do you even know that these are F1 international students that you're talking to? Mm -hmm. Does that does that come up in your in banner or? I don't think so. Does it? The visa status does not. Uh -huh. but if you look at the test scores, I think there is a. If you go into the student tab and mm -hmm. look at the students' addresses, first of all, international students will have a home address mm -hmm. in the in the country where they reside, right. mm -hmm. um, and they will also have test scores like TOEFL or mm -hmm. other words, mm -hmm. which indicates that they're an international student. But I don't think the visa status is. Yeah, because that could be true of any <coughs> quote-unquote international student, but I guess they wouldn't be bound by the restrictions of the F-1 visa. There is a there is a space in Banner, but I don't know if advisors would be going to the screen Goa Intel in Banner <laughs> as mm -hmm. part of your routine. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if it would even say it in Compass. 
but I would love to identify no. a way. I've not seen the visa status. Yeah, mm. but I guess if you mm. if you saw those other indicators, right. maybe you could have a conversation and ask. Right. You know, are you an international student on the F1 visa? Because it does affect the way that you are advising them. Mm -hmm. So for the F1 students, they always have to be full time. Whereas mm -hmm. maybe the dependent of an H4, if they wanted to just take one class, they could. Right. Um, so mm -hmm. some of the reasons that they that they can be part-time is that uh, if it's their very first semester and they're having difficulty either with reading requirements or American teaching methods or English language, then we could authorize them to be part-time in the first semester only. Um, but they would still need to take a minimum of six credits. Mm -hmm. Um, another reason is if it's their last semester and they simply don't have any more classes to take, mm -hmm. they could of course be part-time that semester. Mm -hmm. And another important reason is what if they have a medical condition that's preventing them from going to class either full-time or not, they, you know, they could be authorized to take no classes at all. Mm -hmm. So I stress that one because so many times we find out too late they've already dropped out and and then when they finally reveal, oh, I broke my leg or whatever, mm -hmm. I, you know, just tell them I wish I knew because we could have given you the authorization. Um, does anybody have any questions about those? So they always have to be full-time, mm -hmm. 12 credits. If they're going to be part-time, again, you don't have to memorize the reasons. I would say check with OIP. Mm -hmm. But you can refer to this manual also. Um, another important uh, piece of the F-1 visa is that they have to make normal progress towards completing their degree. So that could mean they can't fill up their schedule with yoga. Uh -huh. If they want to take <laughs> yoga, they can do it, but in addition to their into their uh, in addition to their required classes, unless it's going to count as one of their electives, fine. But they can't just fill up their class their schedule with a bunch of classes they don't need, because then it's going to delay their graduation, um, or not going to class, or not doing completing assignments. So in turn, they'll fail, and then they'll have to repeat classes. So that's all part of them not maintaining their visa status. You know, they're, they're here to be a student, so if they're not doing what they're supposed to do by showing up and doing the assignments, then this is a violation. Um, so is there some who just come then, they can want to come to the United States or at least travel, come someplace else, and don't really necessarily have the most serious intent and get into a college university and somebody back home is footing the bill, whether it's mom or the government or whatever. <laughs> yeah, we have some of those. And then they decide, or they get here and they think, oh wow, this is a lot of fun and there's a lot more interesting things to do than be in my classes. And yeah. Or yeah. maybe even less so with the bachelor students, mm. you know, I know like maybe the ESL students uh, tend right. to run into this problem. Mm. Um, well, I also, I mean, I think part of the problem is also cultural, right? So I know mm. in a lot of countries, for example, students will work like crazy people through grade school, but especially mm -hmm. through high school. And they see, I mean, I've, I've read a few articles that talk about how college in a lot of these countries is not anything like college here, that the expectations for work are not very high, the expectations for attendance, because you've already paid your dues. You've worked your butt off. You've got to college, and now you're really not expecting to work all that hard. And then they come here, and in many ways, it's actually the opposite. You may have worked really hard as a high school student here, it's true, but college, 
Yeah. Especially if you're aiming for one of the better colleges and universities, this is probably why you're working hard in high school. Yeah. It just gets ramped up. Is that actually true or is it like a... That is true. Okay. I think it varies Anecdotal. so much from country to country. Right. I have heard that, um, particularly about Asian... About Asian countries, cultures, right. Yeah. It's so stringent up until high school. Then you have a lot of the European destinations where a lot of the classes are very large, so attendance right. is not taken. Right. Ongoing assignments are not you know, required. Right. You take one test and that's it. Right, gotcha. You know, we even had one student come from the UK as an exchange student and he left to journals every week, required reading, I'm out of here, and he left. It's right so much more ongoing work. Whereas the American students going abroad are stressed by the fact that your entire grade depends on one final exam. Right, well, yes, yeah, I've heard yeah. that. Also, I think this is more the graduate model in Europe. Um, of not having classes at all. You basically work mm -hmm. on one project. So you work on your dissertation mm -hmm. and you, you meet with an advisor, you have a project, it takes you usually whatever it is, two years, maybe more to do it. But I know our students who go, uh, we've had a few who have left and gone to, to pursue their advanced degree in Europe and it takes them getting used to not having the structure mm -hmm. of classes from the very beginning. It's not right. like, oh, here, you do your classes and then you work on the dissertation. It's like, no, the whole thing rests on this one Product. So, so interesting. And going back to the mm -hmm. cultural issues, I think I, I have a student this semester who has who has told me that he has ADHD, mm -hmm. but he will not reach out to disability services. He is now suffering from some sort of depression. He's oh. been sleeping a lot. He has missed assignments. He's probably going to fail my class. And he's a student who was with me in the fall and did I think relatively okay. He didn't do as well as he should have. He's a very smart kid, uh, but has mental health issues now, has a disability, but is not willing to reach out. And he's not an Asian student. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that Asian students are much less likely to reach out. I've had students with right. mental health issues in Asia. Right. Um, so that's another component that plays into their performance in class and their ability to keep up with work um, mm -hmm. that I think maybe gets a little neglected. Mm -hmm. sort of mm -hmm. You've been working with the uh, counseling services, I know. Yeah, the hardest part is getting them there. You know, we introduce counseling from the orientation, um, but because it has a stigma, you know, in many countries, um, you know, we even introduce the fact that they have group uh, meetings. It doesn't necessarily need to be one-on-one, -on -one. and, you know, I try to tell them it's stressful. They're here in a new country, new environment, away from uh, friends and family. It's naturally going to be very stressful um, and try to encourage them to get there. And some of them take advantage of it, but you know, a lot of them don't and need to. And it's a challenge. Mm -hmm. Given them all the information, like Andy says, the Latin American student, mm -hmm. um, I don't think he's has gone to disability services. Mm -hmm. And I think he's self-diagnosed. I don't think he's ever been diagnosed with mm -hmm. ADHD. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it's mm. a challenge for him. He's such a smart kid. Yeah. Comes to class. Comes to my class. But apparently missing classes at the point. Oh, and I tell them about the medical authorization too, right from the orientation, because we've had situations where I find out after the fact, and these students could have been saved. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm. Happy to give you a oh, by the way, please go get food and stuff if you're hungry, and I'm going to get more hot water, so you don't need to be too formal here. Um, so Maria, you, was there more that you wanted to go over? Yeah, so, you know, 
being full-time, if you're going to be part-time, getting authorization, making normal progress towards completing your degree. Um, if they're going to work off campus for an internship, even if it's unpaid, it needs to be authorized through our office. So if in your discussions with the student they disclose, I want to do an internship, you know, instead of being, okay, that's great, you can say, okay, that's great, but also go talk to OIP because we don't want them to get into trouble. So we can authorize them through either CPT or OPT, a lot of acronyms with the U.S. government. Um, so basically one of those we authorize it in-house at my office for free and the other one you have to send an application to the government and it costs four hundred and ten. Whoa. That's right. For the OPC. I tell them you have to spend money to make money. So yeah, it's Is unfortunate. Really optional practical training. Yeah. Wow. So every F1 student does get twelve months of full time work experience that they could apply for. Most of them save it until after graduation, but if someone didn't have an opportunity um, within their curriculum for us to authorize the other work authorization, CPT, which is curricular practical training, then they could apply for OPT. Mm -hmm. And STEM students, sorry, STEM students have three years OPT. Right. So, um, so they have an extended OPT time. OPTs are paid, but how about internships? Mm -hmm. Are they ever paid? Sometimes, but even if they're not, they still need to be authorized. So if they do any activity off campus, you know, it would need to truly be a volunteer position, like a humanitarian thing. A lot of students try to pass that just because they're doing this unpaid internship mm -hmm. that is volunteer, but it's not truly volunteering. Right. Right. Well, especially if they're getting academic credit for it. Right, which is oh, that's definite, yeah. Right, then it's definitely not volunteering right. because you are, even though you're not getting paid, you are getting mm -hmm. something in exchange, which would be the academic credit. So right. that makes sense, I guess. But so, is that a one-time fee, or is it every year? Because you said they have to do three years of this for the regular OPT, which is one year. It's a one-time fee. Okay. And if you're STEM eligible, you have to apply again. Another fee. Oh my gosh. For the remainder of 410 again. Wow, that's crazy. Wow. And if so you're why are we in debt? <laughs> well, if it's OPT, most likely you will have graduated, so you won't be in school anymore paying tuition. But if you're doing CPT, which would have to be authorized, it could only be during the semester, like diplomacy has a required internship, for example, then you're paying for the credit. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully your position's paid, but it might not be. Um, and CPT is free. We authorize it in our office. Okay. Okay. Wow. And the, so interesting. the OPT takes also um, at least 60 days to approve it. Mm. Okay. So those are the very basic rules that I think advisors would interact with. But if I had to give any tips, mm -hmm. I would say that when meeting with a student, it would be great if they could create a plan for their registration until the end. I don't know if that's even possible. But just to ensure that every semester they will be full time. Sometimes students, even, you know, even they're not doing anything you know, wrong, they want to get ahead. And by taking a summer class, now they've jeopardized their full-time status gotcha. for the next semester. Mm -hmm. And if there's no reason that we can authorize them for part-time, now they'll have to pay for yoga for no reason. Right. So let me ask you this. Um, 
All right, they're, they're covered by the same flat tuition that right. American students are. Okay, so they can take up to 18 credits a semester mm -hmm. and not jeopardize anything. All right, well that's, that's good to know. Every major through freshman studies, as far as I know, has to put together a model major. So I know we do every year. We have to update it for freshman studies. So they have a model, a model major for English that shows what a four-year program would look like. Mm -hmm. um, I have it for the English major, for the creative writing, for the lit majors, for the creative writing majors, and I even have it for the double major and the English ed majors because mm -hmm. their program is a little bit different. So, so that is a place where they should be. If they, as long as they know what the major is coming in. If they don't, well then that, that changes everything. Mm -hmm. But if they know what the major is, and even if they just suspect, mm -hmm. they could be following a plan. So that would be something to point them toward and maybe make their freshmen mentors aware mm -hmm. of, of really pressing with them, mm -hmm. impressing on them. You need to follow this. Don't mm -hmm. go off the script without talking to somebody. Right. I don't know whether it would be you, because honestly, I'm going to tell you, we don't really get a lot of international students coming through English. Mm -hmm. um, we might get a visiting student, like I had mm -hmm. Felix last year, mm -hmm. um, he was lovely, mm -hmm. um, but they don't tend to end up as English majors, mm -hmm. for pretty obvious reasons. Um, but I'm sure that, you know, uh, my, one of my advisors would just not know enough to be able to advise them right. in that way and would know, oh, sure, you don't want to get done early because right. it's going to be a problem. Right. Um, but yeah, that would I'll be reach good out to freshman studies because I think that could help them save money, mm -hmm. save time, um, and not run into problems. Um, and the other things that maybe uh, professors and advisors might not be aware of, there's certain concepts of an American college classroom that are foreign to them. Right. And we do touch upon it at our orientation. We discuss um, what to expect in an American college classroom mm -hmm. setting. So um, we informed them that classroom participation is, you know, part of your grade here, mm -hmm. where it might not be in other countries. Mm -hmm. um, critical thinking, challenging the author or the professor or whoever um, in a paper. I know a lot of uh, certain cultures that just agree, agree, agree. Mm -hmm. You know, so we, uh, you know, value critical thinking here. Classroom etiquette, being on time. You know, class starts at a particular time. You have a meeting with your professor. It's there for a reason, not it's not flexible. Mm -hmm. Or citations, plagiarism, all that stuff. Even mm -hmm. asking the professor for help, you know, we tell them they have office hours, don't be shy, go to them, mm -hmm. even tell them if you need them to speak slower, um, right. you know, or you're not getting this concept, you have to ask. If you don't open your mouth, no one will know you need help. Right. It's so funny, I, you just remind, I completely forgot I did the, the presentation for the incoming students this mm -hmm. past summer for you. Right. right. Was, yeah. yeah, she's talking yeah, about this. Like, oh, yeah, you did too. Yeah, remember? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They had me in to talk about the same, like, yeah. basically, sort of the classroom experience. You know, that kind right. of thing. Right. That you can ask questions. That you are expected to be there on a regular basis. Sharing work. That's a big issue mm -hmm. we have. Right. Yes. Um, working together on things and then handing in the same assignment mm -hmm. or well, plagiarism. It's yeah. a huge problem. Yeah. So. And had that conversation too, but um, that's interesting. There, you know what? There really should be ways that occurs to me. This is why this is so valuable. Um, one thing that occurred to me is some sort of pre-class questionnaire. I mean, we should all do something like that, you know? What, 
I mean, I don't know, maybe everybody already knows that, especially in certain disciplines. You know that the people in that class are all juniors, for example, or seniors, or whatever. I mean, we don't know that in English. I, I can go through a course on looking Blackboard and see what your, you know, what your registration level is and all that, but still, it'd be much easier. And then to have some questions about that. Are you an international? Mm -hmm. Are you here on an, on an F1 yeah. visa? That kind of thing. Yeah, and I know it can get tricky with, you know, liability and things like that. Right. Are you a citizen or not? But right. you know, I can ask maybe compliance the best way to word that. Right. Well, well, I want to, yeah, to, to be able to provide you with the help you need to right. put it in that good way, I guess. One thing that mm -hmm. faculty can do that I do in my freshman writing classes, but you can do this in any, in any course right. at any level, is do a little, um, like a literacy narrative or a literacy survey. Mm. Survey seems too formal, but a little narrative right. for a state of class that sort of can be used to get a sense of who the student is, what their writing practices have been, mm -hmm. what sort of education they've had, how much, how many years of English they've had, you know, and right. also a sense of some of these issues, like mm -hmm. do they know what plagiarism is? You know, it could be a formal or, or an informal writing assignment, a short thing mm -hmm. for 15, 20 minutes, just to get a sense of what their background mm -hmm. is. And I think that would be very helpful in terms of addressing their issues in the classroom, regardless of the uh, of the discipline. Right. That's true because you would get answers to a lot of these questions through something like From that. From all the students including right. yeah, yeah. international. So you're not yes, absolutely. Not singling them, singling out. them out. Yeah, I see what you're saying though about the compliance issues of asking them outright, especially in this current climate about whether yeah. or not you are an international Do advisors mostly use Compass? Why don't? No. No. Because that's very helpful for yeah, my no. office too. We, we've joined yeah. that and we, we get feedback mm. from the professors when they write alerts and things. And then my office reaches out to them and I just reiterate mm -hmm. um, the severity that it will affect their visa status as well. And I invite them to come in for an appointment or if it's a really um, you know, big violation or something like that, then I'll mandate that they come in for an appointment and I'll just try to find out what's going on, remind them about all the resources on campus, and remind mm -hmm. them that in the end this will affect their visa status and it, their visa could be terminated, you know. Mm -hmm. I just want to say that I generally I teach all the international mm -hmm. students um, in our writing courses, so I tend to reach out to their mentors in freshman studies, but I mm -hmm. haven't thought of you as being someone who's also critical um, for them, you know, to be reaching out to mm -hmm. because I had not thought about the visa yeah. status. Yeah, we're not academic, but I feel like sometimes when they do hear that, it could affect their visa status and sure. they might take it a little more yeah. seriously yeah. or they might not connect it to. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I'm to backtrack, we, well, we use Compass in the way that we're required to. People go in and file that first account. Mm -hmm. They will, you know, the, for the attendance thing, they will go in to post um, problems, right? If somebody's right. trying to do, use Compass to notify the student you're danger of failing, blah, blah, blah. But I know that there is an advising function, um, mm -hmm. and it's so, it's something I, you know, you're right. It's something I, I should consider having somebody come to the department. So I know they've offered training, mm -hmm. but as in many departments, it's very difficult to get the individual members. It would be much more effective from my, my perspective to have somebody come to the English department on a Friday morning, say before the next department meeting, and work with the actual the advisors, right? I could see if maybe yeah. there's some way that they could add the fact that they're an international student to their profile. Mm -hmm. So if right. you were going in there before your meeting, your advising right. appointment, you could see, you know, 
I don't know, relevant information. Right. Yeah, I mean, I know there's all kinds of stuff that's available for Compass, but it's, mm -hmm. you know, we're talking about, this is the other challenge, um, we're talking about people who do advising twice a year, generally. They will occasionally meet with a student who has some sort of an issue or wants to talk about maybe studying abroad or doing something else. But most of the time we, we advise right before registration for spring and now before registration for fall. But other than that, they'll never see these people or speak to them. And, and the students don't always come. So, um, you know, trying to get them to remember that there's a new and an old English major can be a challenge. <laughs> and you know which one students follow what do they look like so you know you do anything only twice a year like this right. you're not going to be so hot at it but um, do they remain the same advisor they don't always people are on sabbatical I need to so we do it alphabetically mm -hmm. so like A through D goes to this one mm -hmm. E through F or G or whatever goes to this one and then if that person's on sabbatical I just reassign them to somebody else I rejigger the letters something. Yeah, so, yeah, unfortunately, even that's, some people have been very consistent because I just haven't reassigned those people to anybody, but if you're on leave or on sabbatical or you get another position and you just, you know, Nancy was doing it for a while and now she um, is doing core, so she's not advising. Yeah, so. And, uh, Pat's going to leave and so this Yeah, yeah, she does all the business. Yeah, all this things go through our business writing courses. Compass also has a few glitches that mm. seem to be uh, common when you try to adopt to a database of the budget. But international students are coming through ESL mm -hmm. and coded as ESLB, which is a provisional status, and everything's become undergraduate. Right. But right now, I'm getting emails as an advisor group. I stopped to be their advisor once right. they become full-time undergraduate student. So that right now there's about probably 15 students whose advisors are Maria, Mia, Jerry, Xavier. Okay. But they're not, we never see them, they're not our students anymore. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's really interesting. About, um, what happens to the students once they're an undergraduate? Something I think the university has wanted to increase, but this is sort of a test how much attention they're getting, uh, not just on the academics, uh, right. stats, in the uh, cultural and adjustment situation. We, we look for it. You mean those were matriculated, were no longer PSLB, no longer right. divisional, but are matriculated? Yeah. So wouldn't Maria be one? I would still want to be involved with them, but maybe yeah, you wouldn't. Yeah, but, but they're not. Um, getting the attention from an academic advisor that I can see. Most of them are transfer students. Okay. There's always been a gap there. I think um, freshman studies stepped up. And Hazel Patel was doing transfer advisement, I know. I don't know about international transfer advisement, but she was has been doing transfer advisement now for a few years. And she has people I'm working under her. Emails from uh, other companies were saying a student is failing in math courses. Oh, so I here's... Send them to Marissa Case. Gotcha. Um, Joan Brennan. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Something to, uh, to iron out if there's a, an increase in, in students coming from other countries. Right. So, um, Adrian, could you talk a little bit about how... So, what is it... I mean, I, I, I know you're out there, <laughs> and, uh, and our paths course periodically. It's it, it, yes, exactly. But so, who? I know you run courses, and you have. Uh, yeah, some we're uh, a program that's been in existence for about 40 years. Wow. I've been here for 25 years. We're in the College of Education, mm -hmm. 
uh, it's an academic program, so we um, register students with the same calendar and guidelines as the Western University. Uh, our courses, however, don't offer credit. We do have a few on the books which we could roll out, but it, it's a matter of paying $3,600 for your undergraduate courses for $150 per credit is what the Okay. So it's, uh, it's um, competitive with other schools in the area, including the county colleges, where a student can take uh, a skills development course, not expecting to be getting graduation credit mm -hmm. for their own skills, usually with a target to pass the tests, you know, TOEFL, and other tests around. Uh, half of our students are um, undergraduate, but half are graduate in potential studies. Mm -hmm. uh, we have 65 international students in our program. Mm -hmm. this morning. And they're taking, uh, they're fulfilling their requirements for the visa by taking 12 semester hours. Right. Not credit. And uh, the students who come into our program are often um, a very high level of we have some medical doctors who have been through our program. Mm -hmm. Most of the international students uh, have finished their bachelor's degree or two masters or MBAs, different majors they like to get into. Uh, we have um, a program that's uh, tailored to students uh, selling as much as they can. They're welcome to stay for however many semesters they need to, to reach the level of competence. There's somebody, medical doctors have to pass this series of rigorous exams. The last one is like two days and 16 hours a day. Wow. Not as bad as your, uh, your college composition is. <laughs> Sounds like my PhD qualifying exam was yeah, like that. <laughs> Some of them are in graduate programs at St. Paul already. So our students usually have, uh, like the School of Business has admitted a number of members and accounting students who still need to brush up on their spoken skills. So that's one of the issues that comes to surface I think in all academic situations, the question of when is the student uh, really competent is often when the students begin their study, they gain uh, inter-interaction uh, uh, skills with their friends, with their environment. But to gain academic proficiency, it's usually uh, five years more, five, five to seven years is the, the average time that it's recorded for students to gain what we call cognitive academic language proficiency. Okay. Big, um, basic interpersonal communication skills. So the fix often school the people who are evaluating, as you said, it speaks very well. Mm -hmm. But often they need to um, continue with their language development. Right. And, uh, in 
the way that it's set up, DSL is a, is a bridge to a variety of um, statuses. Uh, if they're fortunate enough to, to pass the admissions requirements mm -hmm. from our writing courses to Andrew's writing courses. Mm -hmm. But I think there's often a, an assumption that they're fine once they're completed. Mm -hmm. We don't really keep track of them uh, to see really if they're achieving anything, except for grades, which are right. not all. Right. Hmm. That's interesting. So, so um, Marie had mentioned that you have a, you have a number of old pairs. I know because we've been contacted periodically over the years. I've gotten emails from them saying, you know, oh, I, I understand that you are there classes I can take. So are these generally people who are not necessarily interested in matriculating at the university? They're here in America and they're trying to improve their language skills for one reason or another. Right. It, there's a uh, there two two kinds of old pairs, I guess you could say. The ones from Western Europe, we have 45 in our program. Wow. They are required by their um, visiting regulations, a J-1 visa, okay. to enroll usually six credits in a given year. Okay. The students from Western Europe tend to have more support, like Germans wouldn't really benefit from sticking around and paying how many oh, yeah, no. Right. It's so much cheaper over there, yeah. The government gives them not only the free uh, education, but they send them this kindergarten check. Right. It's like 200 bucks a month for a stipend, even if they're in this country. Wow. But they're very good students. We're doing something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the, um, the students from other countries often are looking to transition into the graduate program. Mm -hmm. So uh, students from uh, Asia or Brazil or South America they're usually um, finished a bachelor's degree. You mean know, pairs from those Yeah, mm -hmm. Okay. So the the uh, situation on campus became a little problematic for them uh, to take English department courses, for example, or math or psychology. When the registrar recently raised the tuition from $100 a credit to $600. Oh, wow. So now they won't be asking if they can audit courses because they know that it's going to cost them wow. $600. Wow. Or their host family. Nothing has to pay. Oh, my right. goodness. Host family pays $500 for Wow. So that fee went up the same time as the senior auditing fee, I guess. I think it was uh, related. Mary Ellen, nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I remember. Well, because we had a very senior gentleman who'd been yeah. taking classes on campus. <laughs> you probably all know Clarence, right? It's <laughs> he's been in everything. He, we, we were his eighth. He's, he was our eighth MA. He was. He, we were his eighth MA, I should say. And now he's working on the Jewish Christian Studies program, <laughs> learning Hebrew apparently. So God love him. But um, but yeah, he was really upset because they increased the tuition. Um, yeah, they like tripled it. Um, and he's you know. That was the auditing fee? Yes. Well, no, it was a senior citizen fee. It was, again, it was 150 a credit. Oh. And they, they went, it went up to, I think, 500 a credit. 
for right. yeah. Citizens, where will they have that kind of? I know, I know. So right now, it's true. I mean, yeah, and I do think they bring something to the campus, you know. Yeah. Anyway, so so are the old pairs your biggest population, Adrian? Uh, no, we have oh, okay. International students who come to the U.S. on the F1 visa. Gotcha. Specifically to work on their English. So okay. They often sacrifice you know, two or three years of their career. Okay. Family life, and you get people to really make a track to get here. And sometimes once they get here, well, that was it. As you were saying, mm -hmm. the concept of uh, entering university is paramount in a lot of countries, whereas, whereas it's Right, right. This is what see the cultural uh, backgrounds right away in our mm -hmm. classes, right, Carol? Because mm -hmm. usually they have to write essays about their own experience and try to get them to own the language and to use it. But they're, um, they're interesting students. The F1 students are aware of. Uh, their requirements, but we need to remind them to, be aware to constantly. The attendance is quite strict. All the classes, 80% 80, 80 raises are went that flat, and less than 80% attending. Okay. Uh, au pairs are um, a good um, resource as well. I, I was looking at some of the services that we've kind of developed on grassroots because we don't really have a budget. So we don't have a lot of uh, tutors. Okay. But what we've done is work with the College of Education professors whose students, often freshmen, sometimes junior seniors, are preparing to be teachers mm -hmm. are now coming into our classes or meeting with our students one to one in a, in a kind of buddy program. Mm -hmm. That helps the students a lot to you have a real conversation with a, a, a non ESL speaker. Right. We, as instructors, we learn how to speak ESL. Right, <laughs> right. Slowly, clearly, but to have a, uh, an interview with a freshman who's disinterested in knowing about the person is very valuable. But another program that's branched out of this is uh, uh, international conversation partners. Okay. So it might work to let the rest of the university departments know, especially the language departments, that our, our au pairs or our international students often have. Uh, teaching skill or conversational skill in Spanish or French. Mm -hmm. they, can do to, they can combine it with English conversation. So it benefits mm -hmm. them. Pair, but it also benefits if I'm taking a French class and I'm enjoying the class. Um, mm. Monsieur Robert achète trois livres. Uh -huh. but, a real French person can come in to the, and have, or do a one-on-one -on -one nice. for conversation. It's very valuable. That's real French. So, do you know? I mean, does Dong Dong know about this program? Are you? She's chair of languages, literatures, and cultures right now. So, yeah, we, we've um, interfaced with them. Through, uh, 
Right. 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 So another thing I'm thinking is, you know, there is, as somebody mentioned before, there's the ARC, right, the Academic Resource Center. I mean, it would be interesting if they, if students like this who are here or just, you know, in your program, you know, peers, whatever, who want to try to improve their language skills could be paired up. As you said, you're going through languages, literatures, and cultures. That if, what if you considered going through the ARC to have a few people on call so that if somebody is interested in language tutoring, they could have a, there could be a little cadre of people that they could tap and they could say, oh yeah, I've got these students who, who do French and these who do Spanish or Chinese, whatever. Do they also have language, do they have language partners or just language tutors? I don't think they have anything there. I know they do math tutoring, they do English tutoring, they do... They have a, they have a schedule. Do they do language at tutoring? At the do they do language? Yes. Yeah. Well, they will. They do editing more likely. Yeah. They'll actually agree to like edit a paper, and they'll sometimes do that thing near the end of the semester where they'll do a special thing. You can bring your paper in. Um, yeah. We've been. Yeah. We try to keep them away from the the right what the writing center does and not repeat it. You know. A couple of years ago, someone was doing conversational English. So someone in your office or maybe your office. Dennis, I'm calling. A couple of years, I think yeah. someone was, was inviting campus ministry also does. As far as yeah, just oh. conversations, right? Oh, yeah. was it Dennis? Oh, I forget who it was. Maybe you're right. Was it Dennis? Oh, yeah. I think she's through campus ministry. Okay. Okay. Maybe three years. Uh, we reinstituted a lot of the programs. Uh, the Buddy, you'll see around campus. The iBuddy. The Buddy. There are two programs actually called, they both call themselves Buddy, which Buddy Buddy. The College of Education and PhD candidates and counseling psychology mm -hmm. uh, started this Buddy program, which is known as fourth semester. And they, uh, they invite students to also sign up. One-on-one -on -one session, and then our um, head studies professors, Lauren McFadness, um, okay. she set up a Google spreadsheet, which I uh, I didn't have any idea you could do. It. Right. One, it's interactive, so it's online, and you go there and you find somebody who has the same time. So I know. I'm, I'm like copying emails. 
Right. Hmm. Yeah. So you were saying, Marie, you think that the ARC is actually offering language tutoring or does offer language tutoring? They offer a variety of subjects. I yeah. thought that they're scheduled myself. There's all kinds, biochemistry, yeah. all kinds. And I thought that they did have language on there as well. They might. But I I'll take a look. It might be more like tutoring. Yeah. Well, the ESL is, has been problematic for ARC. Because mm -hmm. I think ARC basically sends the student back to the department. Okay. Since we don't have um, right. funds to pay a tutor, right. then they send them back to where they came from. Uh, yeah, I don't know how they manage the, the writing piece. So again, we've been we've discouraged them from just doing sort of writing tutoring because we have a writing center on campus that's funded, and you know we want to have people use it. But they did periodically do a kind of late semester. If you want somebody to just take a look at your paper for mechanics, for grammar, spelling, because the writing center doesn't do. It's not an editing service, so they. You know, I mean, obviously, if they see egregious problems, they'll mention them. But they we've been trying to fight for years the idea that you bring your paper to the writing center and this person is just a proofreader for you. Like, you know, that's not what it's for. It's for bigger, more holistic kinds of issues. Yeah. Tell the international students as well. Right, yes. Well, and for a number of years we were running um, oh, grammar workshops. Workshop. But I think Aruna still runs, maybe. Or she used to, I'm not sure if she's still. We're telling about starting it up again, I okay, think, because, again, we have this great need uh, of international students who have all different kinds of issues that, that, that they want help with, right? Yeah. Especially well, reading and writing. A, a really
fine. You, you know, you're not being tested on your knowledge of English. <laughs> Here, that is what you're being tested on. So, grade it on. Maybe that's a nice segue for me. Yes, good. <laughs> that's a good segue. Yeah. So, I just wanted to. Um, sort of shift the conversation a little bit to our international students mm -hmm. who are non-native speakers of English. Because of course we have international F1 visa-bearing students who are native speakers of English, someone from the UK, someone right. from Australia, some, some from uh, some of the countries in Africa where English is the first language but still could be an F1 international student. Mm -hmm. But um, I think some of the concerns that people have across the campus are with students who are non-native speakers of English, sometimes known as ESL students, mm -hmm. sometimes known as L2 students, mm -hmm. and in, in the scholarship more and more being called multilingual students. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm not sure if you guys have noticed this trend, but those who are matriculated who are taking first year writing courses and are, you know, have either are undecided or have a declared major, um, maybe international students with F1 visas who are um, non-native speakers but have graduated from American high schools. So we're seeing more and more students mm. coming with F1 visas, and you can right. speak to this, mm -hmm. who have been in middle school in the United States, mm -hmm. uh, many of them have been here since in high school, so they have a high school diploma from the United States and have experience with English. But for all intents and purposes, show signs of a non-native speaker mm -hmm. in their spoken English and in their written English as well. I've also had students who would look typically like an international student, but if you speak to them, they will tell you they have a green card, which means they're permanent residents. Um, and some even have citizenship because they've lived in the United States for whatever reason, have citizenship, citizenship, so they're naturalized citizens. But when they read and write in the class and speak to you, it seems like they're the typical international student from another country that's a non-native speaker of English. And their language experiences vary as well. So some clearly have a home language, uh, which they speak most of the time, and they don't really speak English a lot. Others have English as a third language or fourth language, so there's multiple other languages that they speak. Some are highly literate in their home language, so they can read, write, and speak their home language, and some are not that, that some are semi-literate, and some don't have much literacy in their home language. Um, most international students who are non-native speakers will have difficulty adapting or adapting to American discourse and conventions of writing in English. Most of them will have that because they don't practice um, Western-style academic writing in their native countries. They certainly don't do that. Most of them are still in the process of acquiring syntactical and uh, written and spoken uh, proficiency in English. Actually, some of my international students from China, especially the two plus two students that we have who come from universities or colleges with whom we have articulations. So they come from, like this year, we have students from Anhui University. We have students from Canberra College. They come with a lot of proficiency. Um, they're very strong writers of English, so they're probably what we call um, eye learners. They've been reading English, um, but not speaking it. They're not ear learners. They haven't been hearing it, but they've been reading English um, and uh, have become proficient just by 
doing some ground grammar, but also uh, reading and writing, possibly, in, at their universities. And they transfer after two years, and they finish off their business degree. So I have a whole load of students, a bunch of students who are finance majors, I think. And they have a very sophisticated vocabulary. Their sentence structure is very strong. They're very fluent. They have a few grammatical errors here and there. But when you read their writing, you generally get the sense that they're very um, advanced readers and writers of English. Um, and some of them even have a critical approach to uh, the discourse that they're working on, which most Chinese students are not used to doing. They do a lot of descriptive, flowery sort of writing in, in high school. Uh, they're not used to critical, analytical, text-based writing. That's mm -hmm. not something that they're used to doing. And many of them will um, have a very unique or non-standard sentence sort of style. And you can read their writing and feel like it's very rich in terms of ideas, but grammatically maybe they're off. So they're not that fluent, but they really are engaging with the writing. So mm -hmm. there's a whole range of types of students and proficiencies that we have. So we, I just want people to remember that, that there's not one cookie cutter type, even though they seem to be, oh, it's a Chinese you know, international student. But that student might be very different in terms of their experience, in terms of their attitude, in terms of their abilities. Um, so we need to keep in mind that our international students are very varied and diverse. Um, some are very fluent in English, and when you speak to them, it seems like they're native speakers, maybe because they've been here since middle school. Some have been here since middle school, but are quiet and will not say a word. So they seem like the typical international student, but yet they've been here for four or five years, right? So there's a whole range. And some of our native speaking students are, can be that way as well, shy and do not speak up. I want to touch upon the issue of identity, which is, I think, really critical, and it's related to the status issues. A lot of international students tend to find the ESL label to be pejorative. Mm. Like, it, um, it's, it's sort of a term which literally means English as a second language, mm -hmm. but has been used very often to, to talk about students who are deficient. So to see students in terms of deficiencies is clearly not um, valuable, number one. Mm -hmm. We don't see the richness that they bring to our classes. So our goal as faculty, no matter what discipline they're in, really should be to recognize that students come with a lot prior knowledge and a lot of experience in terms of their reading and writing abilities, whether it's in English or another language, right? And that the term ESL is sometimes seen as almost like a, I wouldn't say it go as far as to say it's an insult, but a bit of a criticism of who they are. Not their ability, but who they are as students. So ESL seems to be a label. And I think that the terms L2 have become very popular. This is in, in, in the research that, you know, in second language writing that has borne this out. Mm -hmm. And multilingual seems to be another term that's very like open, right? So students from other languages were coming to universities. Because as you know, nowadays with China is, is, is distinct in that it doesn't have Google. It has Baidu and Weibo and all sorts of other mm -hmm. social media. But other countries, you know, students are on YouTube, they're reading, writing, and social media. They're very, very uh, familiar with English, even though they're not practicing it as much. But they really are. We really do live in a very globalized world. If you walk into my ESL class, I'm in the ESL class, second language writing class, mm. you would see how smart they are and how talented they are. So. Um, they may not see themselves as ESL. A lot of our um, Generation 1.5 students, students were, were not really addressing those issues right. in this workshop, but they have come um, as children uh, with immigrant, uh, into immigrant, uh, with immigrant 
families so they've immigrated in the United States and they've gone through the school system but they still have a home language and right. they speak another, you know, yeah. other, but they graduate from American high schools and see themselves as American. Um, they will certainly not want to be called ESL. Right. Because even though they may be a second language learner because their parents are always speaking another language and they are probably semi-proficient in that language, they can mm -hmm. understand it. Uh, some of our Spanish students are like that. They can mm -hmm. understand Spanish but they don't speak it or they don't write it. Those are the students who will not want to be recognized or labeled ESL. Mm -hmm. So um, again, range of abilities, range of experiences, a range of facility with the language. A lot of the Generation 1.5 students have difficulty with um, academic English or um, with being critically able to write discourse that is a standard discourse. Um, because there's a blending of other language and other voices that happen in their writing. And you can see it sometimes. We see that uh, those are the, our basic skills students. Okay. A lot of our basic skills students, or they have other varieties of English they're speaking at home, for instance, black English. Um, so they will not be used to the sort of discourse that we're, that other students who come from probably upper level, you know, more um, higher socioeconomic levels okay. with wealthy, educated parents. Um, so that's another population that may feel like they're L2 or ESL, but they really are not, and the distinctions are very hard to 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 to, to come by. It's it's not hard. It's really hard to separate those things and say this is a language issue or this is a literacy issue um, or there's something else going on. Some people. Mary, you had a question. No. No, it's just that you know. No, I was thinking that we should change. 1201 ES to 1201 ML. <laughs> I mean, there are ways. Yeah, there are ways we can start to re-educate ourselves because in the English department. So even though ES has just become the shorthand, they have no idea what ES means. But still, I think it's these little things that can retrain our brains to think. I love the term multilingual student because it covers both of those groups, and it's not derogatory in any way. In fact, it's kind of celebratory, right? You're multilingual. Most of us are not. So, yeah. Privilege one language right. or another language it doesn't have English as a second yeah. language. It could be their third language, and they can still be yeah. super proficient in English. You can be right. speak French and yeah. Spanish. Yeah. The term ESL also has a negative uh, uh, meaning for purely practical reasons because in most educational systems, including Sydney Hall, before you can be accepted into undergraduate status, you need to go to ESL. Mm -hmm. If you were sent to ESL, that meant, oh, I'm not doing what my parents wanted. I'm supposed to be my secondary business. Right. So it's a, it's a gatekeeping term. Right. It's, it's but now, actually, it's switched over the years, and I found that a lot of students uh, are happy to be in ESL and they often are happy because their advisor told them. It's like, it's a matter of, um, well, you know, Dr. Ness said I should come, and uh, you know, their attitude is very positive, and I, I I need to work on my speaking. Right, right. There are also, pro I mean, we call our program ESL, the ESLP, whereas Rutgers North has been the program in American Language Studies forever, the PALS program. And NYU's program, the equivalent of your program, is the Lang American Language Institute. So there are, you know, diverse ways of 
right. naming the program where they get the language experience, you know, that your program offers. So, um, uh, just a couple of other things with, for folks. Mary wanted us to talk about instruction and assessment mm -hmm. of international students, which is which can be its own workshop. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, it's a big issue. It's a huge issue. Um, so I'll just touch upon a few right. things, and you know, please feel free to ask. So as we know, some of our international students who are non-native really don't want to speak up class, especially our Chinese students. Um, you know, there's a whole lot of research that's done on silence in the classroom. I won't go into that and see the value of silence because we do want to see how our students are performing. We do want to encourage them to speak up and practice their language proficiency. Um, you know, we should offer them um, opportunities such as informal writing uh, opportunities, timed uh, uh, writing, but shorter time, not too much time, because they need to know that they should be able to produce writing in short amounts of small amounts of time, small group work, and also presentations that are pre-planned that are short. So giving them too much time would mean that they're going to sit there and think too much. They're right. not going to do the work. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend short writing assignments when they're even producing like five or six sentences. Right. But as long as they can produce work that's meaningful and makes some sense, uh, it's better than giving them long, long periods of time, periods of time because they won't take it. Mm -hmm. Because they like to have that time, and yet um, I'm not sure if it's being productive. Right. Of course, in so a language, short, short and focused. Give them a couple of questions that they can focus on. So it's not a free for all, or it's not just a free free writing assignment. Yeah. It's structured, but not too much time. I would say no more than 15 minutes yeah. at the yeah. most, yeah. 20 minutes. Um, so have a range of things, so activities, so spoken activities, written activities, small group work when you're speaking to each other. And I encourage them, that even if it's a class of all Chinese students, uh, to speak to each other in English. Mm -hmm. It's hard for them to do that, but if it's a welcoming and a kind environment mm -hmm. in which they're not being policed, mm -hmm. um, then they will be, they will be more um, apt to probably speak in English. So my students from Anhui, this 2 plus 2 group, they're great. They speak to each other in English, probably because they're they are a little bit more advanced than our investment. Um, additional feedback is really critical, and not too much grammar feedback. I think if the, if there are other resources on campus where they can work on their language and grammar and structure and things like that, um, especially at the ARC and the writing and writing center work, just to address that point. Historically, the Writing Center has been sort of hands-off. We don't proofread, but this idea of helping international students mm -hmm. with ad with addressing issues they want to address is coming back right. to Writing Center mm -hmm. theory and practice. In other words, if, a, if an international student comes into the Writing Center and says, I really need to understand why, uh, how I can um, um, better use punctuation so that I don't have friends. Right. Mm. There's a whole slew of literature right. today that talks about we need to be more directive in our teaching of international students if they want that sort of direction. Mm. If they want to work on their ideas, that's great. Let's work on their ideas. So it's student-driven. Student has more agency. Um, and if they want to work on grammar, there's nothing wrong uh, with addressing grammatical and mechanical issues, which doesn't mean that the tutor needs to be a grammar expert. If they take a course in grammar, that's totally different. The tutors should be ready 
to talk about the issues students want to talk about. But of course, if the student keeps coming back every time and, and asks mm -hmm. for something that Mary discussed before, which is proofreading, we don't do that. We don't right. proofread. But we can teach you a few things mm -hmm. that right. help you improve yourself, your, your grammatical skills. Mm -hmm. um, there's one other thing that I wanted to talk about, which is that sometimes international students um, are sensitive to certain topics that um, are culturally um, uh, that are culturally cultural culture specific. Let's say so. Sometimes they won't, don't want to talk about sexuality. They're mm -hmm. not as open. Criticism of authority. Um, so even though we want to be, them to be critical in terms of questioning what the author has written or what the teacher says. They are not taught to be that in their own culture, so it's a huge leap for them to be able to criticize authority. Um, so we just need to be mindful of that. Political beliefs mm -hmm. may vary from culture to culture and nation to nation. They may not want to, as Chinese students may not want to be critical of the Chinese mm -hmm. leaders or right. uh, their, their government. I've had students who have not wanted to talk about Tibet. Mm -hmm. um, one student decides to talk about Tibet, another student does not want to talk about Tibet. Mm -hmm. um, Even our president is sort of off-limits. Right, one China policy, Taiwan, these are all very sensitive political issues. Some students will take it up, some students will not want to take it up. Mm -hmm. uh, personal experiences, religious beliefs, uh, they may not be comfortable talking about religion, especially if they're Chinese and they're generally a secular culture. Mm -hmm. uh, just an aside, this is an interesting aside. I went to Vietnam on my Fulbright mm -hmm. when I went back to do research. Um, there was someone from the government who came almost once a week to make sure I wasn't talking about two things. I wasn't talking about religion, and I wasn't talking about politics. They didn't understand English. They couldn't speak English. They were wow. relying on other English teachers to, to translate. But they wanted to make sure I wasn't talking about politics, and I was not proselytizing any particular wow. religion, which was very interesting. It was. I, just <laughs> <laughs> I could not do it. Yeah. <laughs> and I, well, um, so, uh, that's something to keep in mind, um, and giving students time, uh, extra time to finish assignments that mm. native speakers will probably do really quickly. Mm. So giving them almost like an accommodation, although we don't want to call right. it that, mm -hmm. but if they wanted an extension, right. I've always, I've had, had students falling ill, in particular in freshman uh, writing, the first, you know, first semester, mm -hmm. they've arrived at the end of August, classes started right then, they're getting sick, their food is different from what they've experienced right. you know, eating at home. Give them time, allow them to write in a variety of genres if possible, um, give them a range of topics uh, that probably um, are more suitable for uh, international students, and be very clear and precise in the writing assignments and nothing is left tacit, mm. because American students will read between the lines and know what to do because they've been, you know, they've had this experience from K through 12. But international students need everything to be very, very explicit and direct. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they will be asking thousands of questions mm. or maybe not asking any questions and then not doing that well. Screwing up the assignment, yeah. So one of the things I know that comes up too, Keith, I'm sure we've had this conversation, not so much in the undergraduate class, but more in the graduate program about assessment, um, grading. And to what extent do you grade based on content and overlook sometimes really serious issues in the writing? And to what extent do you say you are in an English class, again, and you really need to be able to um, to be able to express yourself in writing at a, at a 
at this at a certain level at least, uh, but it's an ongoing problem because we've had a number of international students come through the RMA program in English over the years, and it's always that, that balancing act, right? You're really smart, you've got great ideas, but at the sentence level, even with help, even working through, um, we had one student who was working with Jeff on her thesis, and then was working, and then I was the second reader between the two of us. We were constantly just going through this thing over and over again to, to try to make sure the sentences made sense. I mean, she was really smart. Um, but, and then the question becomes, how do I give that student an A? How do I give that student, if I gave a student the grade that really reflected the level of writing and so on, then you'd probably get a C. But you know yourself, we don't tend to get C's in graduate programs. I mean, generally a B is, you know, pretty much the equivalent of a D. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, you know, you're not supposed to get below A, A minus, you know, maybe, maybe a B plus if you really struggle with something. But anyway, so that's an ongoing issue. Yeah, I mean, that's an issue that, you know, touches many levels, including admission, mm -hmm. you know, we're admitting students who have a certain TOEFL score, which should reflect their proficiency. Mm -hmm. So we, looking at the TOEFL score number one, right. we're admitting graduate students, they're taking TOEFL as well, right. and their GRE. Mm -hmm. Guessing they're taking their GRE. Right. So we need to look at that, because um, yep. if it's a low GRE verbal, mm -hmm. or it's a low TOEFL, that's a flag right away. Right. But of course we need to admit students who want to come to our program, right. so that's another issue. Right. Well, we also sometimes, we've had this happen, um, we've used the writing sample, which right. is also not something um, we have learned we can count on, because they're probably getting a lot of help. Right, so what they're sending us is something that has been really gone over by somebody there or God knows what's happened to it, but certainly the writing, when we've gone back later on and compared the writing that they can do here with the writing sample that they sent us, you can tell that this was not, this was not a legitimate writing sample. So one of the standards that is used in second language writing for, for undergrads as well as grads, and I think it's uh, particularly relevant for, for international students, is that the writing, um, should be meaningful. We should be able to to understand what the student is trying to get at. Mm -hmm. So at the level of, first of all, the student should be completing the assignment as well as they can. Mm -hmm. Have they done exactly what the grading assignment says right. they should be doing? So content some comes should come first. Mm -hmm. And secondly, if if the language interferes with meaning that seriously interferes with meaning mm -hmm. so to the extent that you cannot understand these sentences, then that is a serious problem. Right. Mm -hmm. But if there's minor grammatical errors which, you know, don't interfere with the meaning, right. then those are the sort of things that you can at least, you can tell the student you need to work on your verbs or subject mm -hmm. verb agreement or whatever it is, or your fragments, so sometimes they have fragments. Um, that they can work on on their own and you should not penalize them for just mm -hmm. those minor right. errors, right? But if it interferes with meaning, then that's that's a serious issue and right. that's when someone needs to work with them either in the writing center or um, a tutor, mm -hmm. you know, that they can pay to, to work with, with right. them on their writing yeah. so that they understand what it means to construct a sentence that makes sense. Right, yeah. Yeah, no, we've done that. We've sometimes connected them up with other graduate students yeah. and so on. And, you know, I think, you know, you go back and forth because I think so if I had to produce a paper in French, it would certainly have a lot of problems, you know? Um, exactly. So, you know, you, you, right, you want to be fair. You want to recognize that somebody is working in a language that's not, um, not their native one. And especially because if they're here as a graduate student, they don't have the same kind of time to work through, say, freshman year, sophomore year, until we get to the material that's much more difficult. 
and kind of work on refining it, suddenly, bang, here they are, and in two years, they've got to get up to the speed of writing a master's thesis. I guarantee you that all of our international students from China are using some translation software. Yeah, that makes sense. And they are generally, we've had a few poor um, Arabic. We've had one or two, but yeah, had a few more Arabic, but mainly, mainly from China. So this is interesting. I have a student from India this I've had her since the fall, uh -huh. freshman. Since English is a first language in India, right. she's fantastic. Right. Um, I've had a student from, I have a student from, um, oh my god, seven. Where is she from? From Ethiopia. Ethiopia. Thank you. I was going to say Somalia. She's a no, delight. Uh -huh. And she's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And she's Ethiopian, so she has a language that is her home language. Okay. Um, my student from Peru, my student from um, Ecuador. These are all students who are second language learners, but right. they're performing at a level that they're all sort of getting A's. Mm -hmm. The Chinese students are definitely using software. Right. Translation software. So the writing doesn't look as bad. Right. Because they've already done that hard work right. of sorting through whatever software they're using and construction. You mm -hmm. know, but the thing is, they're also doing the work of the course. They're That's true. They do have to produce the material to get it translated. Exactly. Right. Exactly. The evidence that they're using, mm -hmm. um, you know. So there's a lot that goes into an assignment that you can tell that the student is actually working on this assignment and going to grade right. or him or that rather than just the linguistic aspect of it. Right. So how should they cite the translation service? Because I always felt like good questions. If you get sister to help you, nice. Thank you. Right. Thank you, sister. Acknowledgements. Yeah, acknowledgements would be good. Um, well, yeah. So we should probably wrap up. Um, and um, thank you so much. This was really informative. And uh, as I said, what I'll do is um, near the end of the semester, I usually send out, I'll send out an email telling people there is uh, material posted online 